Around 3 p.m. Eastern time on January 22, 2008, a housekeeper named Teresa and a masseuse named Diana arrived at a loft in Manhattan. Moments later, they discovered their client unconscious in his bed. They called his friend who called the police. They realized he wasn't breathing. They called 911. They attempted CPR to no avail. Paramedics arrived and were similarly unsuccessful. And at 3.36 p.m., Heath Ledger was pronounced dead. His body was removed from the apartment and the subsequent autopsy reported, and I quote, we have concluded that the matter, manner of death is accident resulting from the abuse of prescribed medications. In other words, it was a drug overdose. In July of that same year, the world responded to Mr. Ledger's final appearance in a film, which was his acclaimed take on the Joker in the Christopher Nolan film, The Dark Knight. Ledger won an Oscar and a Golden Globe for the performance, which Christopher Nolan accepted on his behalf and said, after Heath passed on, you saw an extraordinary hole ripped in the future of cinema. He said this because he was aware of not only Mr. Ledger's talent, but his potential, a potential that will never be realized. And this is sadly a very familiar story to most of us, a story we can tell about any number of people, famous or otherwise. This week, it got me thinking about Trent Reznor, who's a dude who's been perhaps my greatest creative hero consistently over the years from age 12 to age 36. In the mid-90s, suffering from anxiety and depression, Reznor had become an alcoholic and an avid cocaine user to cope with new fame and emotional unhealthiness. But then in 2000, Reznor injected a large amount of what he believed to be cocaine, but turned out to be heroin. He was, just like Heath, discovered unconscious in his room. But unlike Heath Ledger, Reznor was resuscitated. Later, having been encouraged to beat his addiction by friend and mentor David Bowie, Reznor entered and completed rehab. And like Bowie, the years post-drug use were marked by his most accomplished and acclaimed creative output. He made more albums, he started new bands, he won Oscars and Golden Globes for his work scoring films, and he's still doing it today. Together, Bowie and Reznor alone are enough to destroy the ridiculous but pervasive myth that drugs somehow make one more creative rather than less so. But Trent Reznor's story could have ended in 2000. And maybe a story about a movie star abusing prescription meds or a rock star confusing heroin with cocaine sound altogether unrelatable to you. But this is a human story. It's the human story, really. At least that's what we believe. We, meaning those of us who follow Jesus. Think about it. We believe, first of all, that God made us. Remember that part? God, in the poetic language of the scriptures, knit us together in our mother's wombs. So there's intimacy and there's craftsmanship, craftsmanship and there's purpose. But there's more to it than that as well. God uniquely qualified each of us to do stuff. He's wired our brains so that some of us make things and some of us parent children and some of us teach people and some of us help make something work or lead people or support people or some combination of those things, whatever. Each of us has been invited to participate in contributing goodness to the world, whether that's founding nonprofits or as a parent or as a plumber. And that would all be great if we weren't also massively screwed up. I suppose this is as good a time as any to say hello I'm afraid it's me again. My name is Josh Porter. I help lead a church plant called Van City that your church planted, actually. For those of you counting, this is my 10th 
Bridgetown guest teaching since planting Fan City. And for those of you who recall uh, my previous comments on the matter, I have now passed Tom Hanks and John Goodman. I am creeping on a come up. But if you have no idea what I'm talking about, well, don't you feel left out. Already, I don't know how this is going. Normally, there's a bit of give and take to this kind of thing. But I'm deep in the lower chambers of uh, Bridgetown headquarters, and I'm talking to a camera. I'm not sure how sarcasm and dry humor really translate in this format. That's all I have to offer, I'm afraid. So I'm going to try to informalize the production value of everything by talking to people off camera. Right, Bethany? Bethany looks so mad, right? Oh, don't, don't throw things. Jeez. Uh, and wasn't I just talking about how we're all a bit messed up? See, the same story that has the bit about God knitting us together, inviting us to collaborate with him in the world, that same story also tells us that the world is broken, and so are we with it. It's a bad situation. Part of us is compelled toward God, every one of us. We know something is missing. We all have a universal sense that there is a way that things should be, and that most of this isn't that. And we're the reason. All of us contribute to injustice and disorder in ways big and small. So to fix this mess, God would have to get rid of us. But he doesn't want to get rid of us. He wants to rescue us and the world with us. All of that is in the story that people like us who follow Jesus use to understand the world. So let's read from that story. Turn in the New Testament to a letter we call Galatians chapter 5. You do a lot of talking about a thing for a few weeks and the information starts to pile up. Lots of advice and instructions and data and stories. It's not a bad thing. It's actually crucial. But depending on your personality, all the promising information could set you up for unrealistic expectations. I would prefer not to do that. Heck, I've been told by several people that I'm the only pastor that people know who with relatively relative consistency reminds his church of their inevitable deaths. It's true, by the way, you are, you watching this at some point, going to die. That's perspective, y'all. It's not to bum anyone out. It's perspective. My point is, I'm not personally the go-getter, optimistic, you-can-do-anything kind of personality, to a fault, I suppose. But I do care deeply about the integrity of the things that I say up here. I don't ever want to be phony or flowery or promise you something that I don't actually believe myself. And I do believe in adapting and implementing the lifestyle and the spiritual rhythms of Jesus into our context, even and especially the really difficult ones. Simplicity has been massively formational for me personally. But even if you minimize your possessions, even if you learn to be more thoughtful with the way you speak, even if you begin thoughtful modes of practicing justice and generosity with your finances— Simplicity is about more than talking and wardrobes and wallets. From the Old Testament to the New, into the early church of Jesus, down throughout church history, disciples of Jesus have recognized the necessity of restricted gratification, or what we might call the simplicity of pleasure, or as I like to say it, sobriety as simplicity. And here's why this seems misleading. It seems like we're mostly talking about something called asceticism, Now, asceticism is a lifestyle of severe and usually uh, religious self-discipline and restriction. Asceticism brings to mind images of like miserable monks and nuns and the Amish, people who have sworn off sex and electricity. And maybe it seems kind of impressive or unattainable from a certain angle, but mostly to most people, it seems kind of absurd. 
And that's because you guys live in Portland. Excess is practically written on the town charter. It could be, for all I know. Has anyone read the town? No one's read the town charter. No one in this room. You haven't read the town charter. Uh, anyone read a town charter? <laughs> I certainly haven't. Town charters aside, you get the ethos. You get what I'm talking about. You, the idea is kind of like, oh, you like coffee? How about 1,500 coffee shops per city quadrant, each of them with near identical branding and interior design, because this is also where aesthetic originality goes to die, apparently. Or the question is, do you like beer? We have an entire subculture for you. In fact, it's less of a subculture, it's mostly just culture. Or do you like food? We have that as well. And of course, none of this can be done without your phone sewn to your hands captured in vivid detail as you pose with donuts and lattes, uh, a chorus of camera shutters soundtracking every hip new restaurant and bar. In the New Testament, you have Paul writing to Timothy and saying, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. But in Portland, it's more like, if we have hundreds of rotating options for food, coffee, beer, and novelty entertainment accompanied by homogenized Instagram comrade approved designer fashion, we will be momentarily contented with that until we are not and then we need more. So any hint of asceticism or the idea of self-denial sounds to the Portlandian ear like a far-flung radicalism. And then its only hope of catching on is the rapid moving current of trend. Why did dozens of books and articles and documentaries and podcasts about minimalism proliferate over the span of a few short years? Because it became trendy. And the manual often smacks of individualism Modern Westerners, of course, breathe the air of individualism, steeped from birth in a worldview that values and highlights personal freedom and autonomy and expression above any kind of group identity. It makes consumers of us. Our desires and needs and stories exist in a vacuum independent of our families and communities and the generations before us. So why embrace the trend? It'll make you happier. It'll make you super cool. It'll make your super house look even super cooler. It'll reduce your fretful anxiety over your stuff. And don't get me wrong, there are elements of truth in those things, valuable elements of truth in those things. But Jesus' teaching on simplicity demonstrates zero concern for individualism. In fact, in the story of the Bible, there is no paradigm for individualism. Entire families and even nations, even generations of people understand their identity as woven into the group or the tribe or the people. So simplifying excess demonstrates concern for the other. Yes, Jesus is absolutely after your joy, but you are not an island. Why embrace simplicity? To love other people well. Simplicity of possessions teaches us the way of justice. It makes quiet examples of us as we lead others in the way of quiet contentment. Simplicity of finances frees us up to give our money away to demonstrate the radical self-sacrificial love of Jesus. Simplicity of speech directs our attention to others when our tongue would move us inwardly or selfishly. And simplicity of pleasure brings all of these things together by decluttering the mind and the soul so that we can become active channels of the Holy Spirit because that's what's at stake. Excess can sabotage the potential of your apprenticeship to Jesus. And you do have, every one of you, great potential designed, hardwired by the God of the universe himself. And yet there are things that can cut that potential short. So let's look at a famous New Testament warning in Galatians chapter five. 
Galatians, for a bit of context, it's a letter written by someone called Paul, who after an amazing encounter with Jesus, he went from violently persecuting the church of Jesus to growing the church of, of Jesus and then writing most of the New Testament. So not so bad. See, the way of Jesus began amongst first century Jews, but it was always intended to grow beyond one ethnic group and spread amongst all people. But when that finally happened, some Jewish disciples of Jesus began to insist that these new Gentile or non-Jewish disciples of Jesus adhere to the strict Jewish law of the Old Testament. And Paul, who was once a staunch proponent of that same law, now believed that it was kind of ridiculous to ask these new disciples of Jesus to keep up with this old law. So for the first few chapters of Galatians, he argues that strict adherence to the Torah or the law has actually failed to reconcile anyone to God. But where the Torah failed, this Messiah called Jesus has finally succeeded, which is great news. Then in chapter five, Paul addresses uh, an obvious pushback to that argument. If these new Christians don't keep the Torah, his opponents might ask, then how will they know the right way to live? What kind of rules would they adhere to? And Paul's answer is both simple and profound. He basically says they will know by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, Paul says, is how Jesus is with his disciples always, how he is building from them a new humanity. But, Paul says, there's a word of warning here as well. So finally, all that to say, let's look at Galatians 5, beginning with verse 13. Paul writes, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. In other words, you're not under the law, Paul says. So does that mean that there are no longer any guidelines for right living amongst disciples of Jesus? Keep reading. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Now, the flesh, if you recall from our previous series on the topic, is that uh, broken, disordered part of your will and your desire, the part of you that's bent away from God and drawn to things that destroy you and destroy other people. Don't indulge the flesh, Paul says. And then he goes on, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law, the whole Torah, is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So without a Torah, what do we do to combat the flesh? He says in verse 16, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to King Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So, how can you tell when one is operating in the flesh? To Paul, it's kind of obvious. He writes, 
The indications are things like sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, and the list goes on before Paul warns that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Lots of people read this as a, an eschatological thing, meaning Paul is kind of saying that if you do these bad things, then you won't get to go to heaven when you die. And while the New Testament does have a lot to say about ways of living that have eternal consequences, that's not the primary thing that Paul is addressing here. When Paul says kingdom of God, he means it the way Jesus meant it, as God's inbreaking rule and reign in the here and now, a way of life marked by peace and goodness and self-sacrificial love. So if you operate in the flesh, then by design, you cannot operate in the spirit and you will not experience the good rule of God over your life and your family and your community and so on. This is what will sabotage a rule of life well lived. This is what will derail your quest for spiritual formation. It will stunt your maturity, end your potential, and in Paul's language, keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. And notice there are things on Paul's list that describe abuses of things that are not inherently evil. Modes of sexuality, for example, or drunkenness. Many of these things one can immediately recognize as vices, what we would call vices of the flesh, habits and behaviors that corrupt our character and the world around us. Around us. Now, language like this, talking about vices of the flesh, sounds really fire and brimstone, but Virtually everyone believes in a difference between good and evil and that some things are one or the other only. What many people don't like, on the other hand, at least in the kind of post-enlightenment Western world, is the suggestion that this idea of good things and bad things is objective. That is not really up for interpretation. Much of the Portland ethos doesn't take kindly to the idea that evil doesn't vary from person to person. In other words, evil is just evil. The more popular idea is, hey, it depends on you. It depends on what you believe. Find your own truth. Do what makes you happy. Diet Coke, Instagram, which immediately becomes an unresolvable tangle of contradictions. Everyone believes in some kind of objective truth because we can't functionally carry out any other worldview. We all think that there are right and wrong ways of understanding the universe and how one ought to live in it. Paul thinks it's obvious what differentiates the outworking of the flesh from the outworking of the spirit. And he begins this list with sexual immorality, which is kind of a junk drawer term that includes anything and everything that deviates from God's good design of human sexuality as something that takes place exclusively between a man and a woman in a lifelong monogamous marriage covenant. Anything not that steps out outside of God's will and is led away by the flesh. Think of the excess of porn, for example. The idea that God's good design for human sexuality is so decidedly narrow that a better way to enjoy sex is in the objectification of strangers, lots of strangers, many of them we know trafficked as slaves, reducing them to objects. Few blind spots are more glaring. Saturday Night Live, for example, has become a bastion of progressive ideology using its comedy, in particular the Weekend Update, to lambast racism and sexism and culture and politics, which is all good and well. But in April, I noticed SNL joked that Pornhub would be the great unifier of those in quarantine. And it depicted smiling men and women and couples gathering around screens to enjoy images that in study after study after study have been shown to promote misogyny and racism. 
And Paul's list includes not just things that are extreme examples, pornography, but also sexual fantasy or sleeping with or fooling around with a boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance or failing to cultivate and work toward consistent intimacy and sexual connection between spouses, anything that deviates from God's good design. Paul even has to list orgies specifically because he was writing to a different time and place. I'd like to say that this goes without saying, but honestly, few things surprise me anymore. So please note Paul's inclusion of orgies on this list. The point is that sexuality outside of God's design is powerfully destructive. And much of it is, in the simplistic sense, excess of God's design, a perversion of it. These things will destroy the structure and function of your discipleship in the immediate sense, and in the long term, they will destroy you, as will their outward expressions of impurity, he goes on to say, and debauchery, and so will idolatry, which is the tendency of humans to take a position that should belong to God only and appointing someone or something other than God in his place. And most of us get that idea, but again, here we have the idea of good things in excess. This happens to us when we live for our careers or our, our ambitions, when we attempt to draw life and identity from, from things that we have or from appearances or from a fabricated veneer of ourselves that we project online, or when we attempt to draw life and identity from good things like spouse or our children or a ministry or, or good things that we've done. It happens in excess of things in general, good or bad or neither, when we give more attention and focus and devotion to a touchscreen than we do to prayer or to the scriptures or to the spirit of God in us. Things from which we can derive a sense of pleasure, some of them good, but when things you love are not in the right order or when no restriction is set on your intake of that pleasure, your spiritual formation will flounder or worse, topple. Our ability to follow Jesus well presupposes a deliberate narrowing of pleasure. What I mean by that is there are a great many things by which our brains can do their chemical thing and award us a sense of enjoyment. On that very long list, you can find all sorts of very bad and very destructive things. And following Jesus is not unlike any other disciplined way of life in that it requires a narrowing of pleasure in the same way that, for example, athletes and bodybuilders choose not to just eat anything they want. The disciple of Jesus deliberately restricts their indulgence of pleasure for the sake of competent discipleship, which makes Paul's next item on the list an interesting word. The Greek word here that my Bible translates as witchcraft is pharmakeia in Greek, and it can be translated as the use of medicine or drugs or spells. Some people assume that the connection between drugs and spirituality kind of originated in the 60s or amongst primitive tribes of people, but the idea is really as old as the New Testament and much older. And interestingly, the New Testament never denies the spiritual reality of drugs and shamanistic practices. It simply argues that these things act as doorways to the kingdom of darkness, to Satan and to demons. They never lead to the kingdom of God or to his spirit. I was in Portland one morning, pre-plague, having breakfast with a few friends. Remember breakfast with friends? And we were talking about some reading that I had been doing about the growing public discussion around allegedly therapeutic uses of a drug called psilocybin, which is 
the naturally occurring psychedelic drug and what we often call magic mushrooms. Something I knew nothing about. I've been straight edge my whole life. I've never even had alcohol, let alone hippie drugs. So I'm telling my friends about my reading, few lectures I'd listened to, and a woman in her 50s slides right up to our table, smiling and eager, and she says, you guys are discussing my favorite topic, psilocybin, mushrooms. And I was like, oh, this is not gonna go well. So I said, oh, you're not gonna like what I'm saying about them. And she seemed genuinely perplexed. Why? Why, why in the world? And I said, oh, because I don't like them. And she seemed, again, genuinely shocked. She said, I have never in my life met anyone hostile to mushrooms. And I thought, wow, that's a really narrow social circle, lady. You don't know anyone that's not into illegal drugs? That seems pretty, pretty narrow. And now I'm in a predicament. I have no intention of pretending to think that illegal drugs are neato for this lady, but I'm also not totally interested in getting into a discussion about spiritual warfare and demons with a stranger at a public restaurant either. So everyone at my table, Bethany was there, she was just looking at me like, man, just let this mushroom lady go about her business. Why is this conversation still happening? So I was polite, I was friendly. I told her that I personally, I'm not into the drugs. I don't like intoxicated states. I don't like drug culture. I'm just not into any of it. That's why I said you wouldn't like what I had to say. And this lady, whether she meant to or not, actually said something pretty telling. She said, and I quote, oh, I do like drugs because I like shortcuts. Drugs aren't a modern invention and neither is the use of natural and unnatural things for spiritual purposes. But in the Bible story, from cover to cover, the way that one pursues and attains intimacy with God, spiritual formation, healing, wisdom, maturity, and spiritual insight is via sobriety, which is why Paul doubles down and includes drunkenness on this same list of vices that will sabotage discipleship and keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. In the Old and New Testament, any intoxicated state is a barrier to God. I can scarcely overstate how clear and consistent this thread runs throughout the entirety of Scripture. The New Testament describes intoxicated states as indecent in Romans 13, as belonging to the brokenness of a fallen world in Galatians 5, as leading to debauchery in Ephesians 5, and even lists unrepentant intoxication amongst the major barriers to the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 6. The New Testament consistently upholds sobriety as the way disciples of Jesus are unique in 1 Thessalonians 5, the very means by which we set our minds on Jesus in 1 Peter 1 and 4. Sobriety is how we resist the devil in 1 Peter 5. Thus, Intoxication is explicitly and consistently prohibited throughout the Bible, which also condemns the effects of intoxication, hallucinations, addiction, loss of judgment towards sin, loss of physical control, loss of wisdom, loss of financial control, embracing foolish behavior. And please listen to me on this. All of that includes everything from socially acceptable behaviors like getting tipsy or or drunk on alcohol or using marijuana with THC to get high to the more serious sounding stuff like abusing prescription medications or eating mushrooms or doing cocaine or whatever it might be. Now, of course, we as disciples of Jesus are not anti-science. We're not anti-medicine. There is a place for nuanced discussion about legal medicines prescribed by doctors in trustworthy clinical settings to treat disorders of the mind and body. But even then, the disciple of Jesus is to seek wisdom and discernment and community and the Holy Spirit never 
default to drugs carelessly. When I first arrived in Portland's beer enthusiast culture some 10 years ago now, I was shocked to learn that alleged disciples of Jesus just get drunk. And I'm not talking about uh, healthy, disciplined relationships that many disciples of Jesus I know have with alcohol. I'm talking about getting tipsy and drunk on the weekends. It's a thing. They hang out, they drink, they get all weird and talkative. They have to hand their keys to a friend and then they go to church. They do this in public. It's not a secret. Make jokes about it. Talk about it openly, completely flaunting the seriousness with which the Bible condemns drunkenness. And the Bible takes all this so seriously, not because the authors were prudish or vanilla or anti-science or straight edge. It's because compromising sobriety is one avenue that the devil uses to destroy you. I think of 1 Peter 5, be alert and of sober mind, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The people have asked why I sound like I have such a hardcore stance on drugs or weed or getting drunk or psychedelics or whatever it might be. That's why the devil is looking for someone to devour. Way back in our Fighting the World, the Flesh and the Devil series, we argued that the devil's strategy is to use deceitful ideas that pander to our brokenness and that have become normalized in a broken society. Casual, occasional drunkenness, normalization of getting high on weed or edibles or using psychedelics as spiritual gateways. These things are, to my estimation, one of the clearest examples of this strategy thriving. And despite any accusations of fundamentalism or not getting with the times, I am more than happy to take Peter's warning very seriously. Maybe some of you watching this or listening to this are like me and kind of thinking of yourself as conveniently secure in this particular area because getting drunk or using, you know, drugs, marijuana, whatever it might be, it's not really your thing. But you know well enough that there are other excesses that also enslave, pleasures that are difficult to restrict. One of them, nearly all of us carry around in our pockets. And that efficient little device can destroy you as well. Other substances are used in secret, in private web browsers. Some of us use experiences or relationships in excess, and the excess of pleasure distracts us or numbs us, effectively silencing our connection to God's Spirit. For others, it's honestly the pleasures of quiet, the pleasure of rest in excess that becomes laziness and aimlessness. And some of us simply idle through life, avoiding reality by not doing much of anything, good or bad, nine to five, eat, sleep, repeat, good things in excess, another mode of the flesh. And when we operate in the flesh, rather than in God's spirit, we fall away to all of Paul's other warnings, hatred, we sow seeds of discord and jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, and the like. These things are enemies of the way of Jesus. Porn, digital addiction, getting drunk or high, compromised sobriety, anger and resentment, selfish ambition, distractions, and simplicity, sobriety, the restriction of excess in and of themselves, they do not keep these creeping enemies at bay. Sobriety simply facilitates something more important, which is the Holy Spirit. 
which is why Paul concludes his letter by contrasting this new way of being human with the old and broken way. So look down one more time at Galatians 5. At the end of verse 21, Paul writes of the old humanity, I warn you as I did before, those who live like this, all those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he goes on in verse 22, the fruit of the spirit on the other hand is love and joy and peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The habits of the old humanity, lust and intoxication and rage and all that, they dehumanize people and they destroy relationships and communities. Many of you know this, sadly, from firsthand experience or exposure. I've seen it over and over and over again. The Old Testament law expressly prohibited these things, but Jesus did more than that. He put them to death in his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead so that now when a person, any person, decides to entrust their life to Jesus as master, teacher, and king, the life of Jesus can become their life as well. And when we practice the way of Jesus, we're formed and shaped by the way of Jesus. And this produces what Paul called the fruit of the Spirit. Now, you guys have talked before several times about the way that many people read this list, the fruits of the Spirit, as a list of commands, meaning the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, and all that. So we should just get out there and be more loving, be more joyful, be more peaceful, and so on. But the only command in the passage isn't to be more loving or joyful or anything. It's to keep in step with the Spirit. That's the command. When you keep in step with the Spirit, your life will, like a cultivated tree, produce fruit. And that fruit will be love and joy and peace and so on. But that kind of thing is anything but fast. And it certainly isn't easy. I'm afraid at the risk of disappointing the lady who interrupted my breakfast, there are no shortcuts this symbolic fruit is, actual, is, is like actual fruit in that it must be grown and cultivated. How? Well, in Paul's words, by living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. Hebrew scholar Tim Mackey says of this text, this requires intentionality. We have to learn how to prune off our old habits and cultivate new ones. As we do so, we find ourselves carried along by the Spirit as Jesus reshapes our minds and hearts and makes us into people who love God and others. So why go through all this trouble to unpack the practice of simplicity? It's certainly not just to declutter or to follow a fad or to make your apartment look more hip. Simplicity can become for us, like all spiritual discipline, the means by which we keep in step with God's Spirit. By knowingly embracing Jesus' teaching on simplicity in our lives, whether we're wealthy or decidedly less so, whether we have very much or very little, that's what this has been all about the whole time. People tend to misunderstand simplicity and as a way of life that makes good things out to be bad things. And it makes sense because uh, there's a lot of that in church history. Sadly, it doesn't take a historian to point out times and places when the effort to simplify pleasure became an aversion to pleasure altogether, as if enjoying life and the world and the things in it were somehow themselves wrong. That doesn't make any sense. God designed us to experience joy from good things, wired the complex chemical reactions of our brains to accommodate pleasure and joy and satisfaction. But we are also broken. And so is the world. And so many 
corrupt the freedom of Jesus, twisting and mangling it so that it becomes a license for another drink because we have freedom or another purchase and more and more and more. The simplicity of pleasure is about recognizing that though God has in mind for us to experience joy and pleasure in life, we concede that his understandings of both are greater than our own. Though we are all well convinced that more will give way to happiness, if we have more, we will be more happy, Jesus says otherwise, and he is our teacher. He is our master and Lord. We also need each other for this. We need people to love us enough to remind us that we sometimes forget this is true. We often lose sight of, hey, this is the way to life. These other things lead to death. Each of you has massive potential to impact the world for the sake of what Jesus called the kingdom of God. It's this idea that when God's will is done rather than our will, when God gets what he wants rather than we getting what we want, rather than Satan's will, Satan, Satan having his way in the world, when that happens, there's healing and restoration and justice and kindness and peace and self-sacrificial love. Maybe you feel as if your potential is insignificant compared to a movie star or a CEO or a missionary or whoever it is that seems more significant in your mind, but God simply does not measure impact like us. A quiet life led by the Spirit of God, submitted to the teachings of Jesus, a life putting away the old habits in exchange for the new, that changes the world. Some of you, I know, have been inspired and big ways by larger-than-life personalities, famous people known the world over, and that's fine. But more of you, I believe, have likely been impacted in more significant ways by a person in your life who was not famous, but who demonstrated the kindness of Jesus, who lived the quiet integrity of the gospel, who embraced self-sacrificial love, whose life was evidence of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Not because they white-knuckled it and really tried to be all those things, but because of their deep connection to the Spirit of God, they became a person of love, a person of joy, a person of peace. Not perfect, but they changed your world. A friend, your mom or dad, your husband or wife, or a mentor or someone who had no idea they impacted you at all, think of that person or of those people and then remember this, you have that same potential in you. God wants that for you. He's actually made you a certain way for that very reason. You guys have been talking about what makes simplicity for a disciple of Jesus unique amongst minimalism trends and design aesthetics. And one of those things is how hardcore the idea is, how it absolutely flies in the face of the status quo. But really, simplicity is an aspect of every disciplined way of life in which an apprentice works towards some kind of mastery. We've been talking for years now, both at Bridgetown and at Van City, about the way that Jesus' way of life requires practice. It's why we do the practices at all. And we compare this way of life to something like a concert pianist or an Olympic athlete or a ballerina or black belt, stressing the reality of practice as one of the primary means by which we move forward in our spiritual formation. But practice is only one crucial dimension of the lifestyle of kung fu masters and ballet dancers. And simplicity is another. To give the entirety of your life to something requires that you deny yourself certain pleasures and luxuries and purchases, even certain desires and relationships. And we don't typically accuse the master pianist or Olympic athlete of being less human 
for their self-denial. So ask yourself, what excess needs simplifying in your life? Could be something like food or alcohol or the way that you use your time, a device. What will you do about it? Who will you ask to hold you accountable? I am suspicious of all modes of discipleship that do not take self-denial very seriously. Those who suspect Jesus would emphasize their freedom to do as they please and be whoever they want. No serious apprentice in any demanding craft or trade would accept that kind of contradiction. And our master boldly proclaimed that the prerequisite to discipleship is self-denial and death. Not so that you will be diminished, but so that you will flourish. I assume this message will be alienating to many. Jesus did too. Narrowing the channels of pleasure so that we say no to excess and yes to sober-mindedness is not a way of limiting who we are. It's the way that we will embrace the full scope of our potential to be empowered by God's Spirit and to step into our God-given calling. Simplifying and limiting pleasure is a disciplined gesture that says, the way I order my decisions and days and priorities and pleasures will reflect my love of Jesus and his calling over my life. And I will stand and fight that which seeks to enslave. I will not befriend the devouring lion. Simplicity is a statement that says to Jesus, our King, that though everything in this world is vying for my attention, my time, my heart, excessively so, those are unforgiving masters, and I want to give those things to you because he is better, because he is best. 